many times God's greatest blessings grow out of our greatest sufferings. God providentially uses all things, including evil and suffering, to accomplish his perfect plan in his perfect time. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Uh, today, Lord willing, we're going to open Exodus. So if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus, chapter 1, Exodus comes right after Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible. The Jewish rabbis call Exodus, quote, the book of names, unquote. And the Hebrew title for the book of Exodus comes from the first words of the book. Now these are the names. That's the first phrase in the book of Exodus. That's the English translation for the first two Hebrew words. The very first English word of, English, of, of Exodus is the word now, now. It's a Hebrew conjunction word that means and. So your translation may say, and these are the names, or now these are the names. It is a connective word. And or now is a word that connects what's taken place in the past to what's going to take place in the future. So think about Exodus as the sequel to the book of Genesis. Actually, Exodus is chapter 2 of a five-chapter book called the Pentateuch, written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Genesis is about creation. Exodus is about deliverance and redemption. Genesis ends with God's chosen people going down into Egypt, and Exodus is all about God getting them back out of Egypt and on the way to the Promised Land. So the English title Exodus obviously pretty simply means exit, the way out, going out, departure, escape, etc., etc. So the departure of the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt is really the primary theme of the book of Exodus. It's probably the most redemptive book uh, in the Old Testament. The author, of course, is Moses. Moses lived to be 120 years old, and he lived, we think, from about 1525 to about 1405 B.C., we don't know exactly when he wrote the Exodus, the book of Exodus. Probably had one of three different dates he could have written it. He could have written it at the time they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were at Mount Sinai for about 11 and a half months getting the Ten Commandments. He could have written it there. He could have written it somewhere on the wilderness wanderings. They spent 38 years wandering in the wilderness after they refused to go into Canaan at the Kadesh Barnea. Or he could have written it on the plains of Moab right before they went in, the last 30 days of his life. Deuteronomy is the record that he gave them the last 30 days of his life. He could have written it there. We really don't know uh, when he wrote it, but we do know that he's the author. Let me give you the big picture context to put this book in focus. God's master plan was to create human beings in his own image, so he could have an eternal life, loving relationship with him. That was the goal. As you know, sin came into the world, 
and separated God and people, fractured that relationship. So in Genesis 3, God promised a future Messiah, a Christ, who would come and save people from their sin and reconcile that broken relationship between God and man. Now, God created a people named Israel, a people group. That was the group from which Messiah was to be born. God had planned for Israel to represent him on earth, to be ambassadors, to be priests, to represent him on earth so that the world would know what God is like. If you want to find out what God is like, it's helpful to have a physical representation of what God is like. So if people in the world are supposed to know what God is like, you know who they look at? You. They look at people that name the name of Christ and say, I'm a Christian, I have a personal relationship with God. They say, good, then I should look at you and see what your God is like. That's why we are enjoined in Scripture to behave like Christ behaves so that people will have an accurate picture of what God is like, and that's exactly was Israel's calling as well. Now, God began the nation of Israel with Abraham. We think he was born about 2166 B.C., when he was 75 years old, God led him out of, out of Ur of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia, into the land of Canaan. Promised him a son. Abraham waited 25 years. So if you've been praying for something for 25 years, you're in really good company. Don't stop praying. You are to pray until you get room temperature. Then you won't have to worry about praying because you'll be face to face with him. So if you're above room temperature or you're not room temperature, you are to keep praying. Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90, and Isaac is born to two great-great-grandparents. I mean, they were that age, right? So Isaac's son, Jacob, was born when Isaac was 60. Now, he lived to be 180, so about a third of the way through life, and that was about 2006 B.C. God had a plan to grow Jacob's family into a holy nation, a nation that would represent him on earth, but there was a problem. Canaan was a very morally corrupt place. It made San Francisco look like the Vatican. I mean, it was really corrupt. So God sent Jacob's son, Joseph, into Egypt as a slave. And then it elevated him to prime minister. From slave to prime minister is quite a jump. Then God arranged for a famine in that whole region to move Jacob's entire family from Canaan into Egypt where God had already used Joseph to store up surplus food. Are you seeing the providence of God at work here? Are you seeing the sovereignty of God controlling history? So Jacob enters into Egypt about 1876 B.C. He's about 130 years old. Now just by a rev reference, the pyramids of Giza are in the suburbs of Cairo. If you've ever been there, they're literally right on the edge of town. And they were built between 2550 and 2490 B.C. So by the time Jacob shows up to Egypt, the pyramids are already 600 years old. Old news, right? So God brought Israel into Egypt for a specific purpose. Now the Nile River is the longest river in the world. It's about 4,100 miles. They're arguing right now the Amazon may be longer, but right now the Nile is the longest. And, it, and it's very unusual. The Amazon runs south to north. Most rivers run, like the Mississippi, north to south. This one runs south to north. And it begins, really, with the rivers that flow into Lake Victoria in eastern Africa. When you look at the map of Egypt, it's important to understand that 96% of Egypt is desert. 
96%. It's uninhabitable. Virtually all the population lives along the Nile River because no water, no life, right? Egypt has been said as the gift of the Nile, if there's no Nile, there's no Egypt. Every year the Nile would overflow and it would deposit silt and sediment onto the land, onto the desert when it overflowed its banks, and that was the seedbed for agriculture. Very, very rich black sediment every year would overflow, and when the waters receded, they would plant. The source of that water was monsoons in May and, May and, and April in the Ethiopian highlands. That's what produced the water that showed up as floods down the Nile in July. So you'd have monsoons in the spring in the Ethiopian highlands, 15,000 feet up. That water would flow down the river, and it would overflow the banks, and all that silt is where they would plant their crops at that point in time. Now, Goshen is eastern delta. So you look at the delta, the V-shape, right? Cairo's right at the top of the V, modern Cairo. And you look east, that's the land of Goshen, eastern delta. Very, very rich agricultural land. Joseph moved Jacob and his family into Goshen because that was, was ag land, and they were very sequestered from the rest of Egypt. Actually, Goshen was a spiritual incubator that Israel needed to grow spiritually without being corrupted by Egyptian idolatry. So God took them out of very, very wicked Canaan, moved them into Canaan, moved them into Egypt, but made sure that they were in a safe part of Egypt where they wouldn't be intermarrying and being spiritually corrupted by the Egyptian idolatry. Now, the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. So Exodus begins, verses 1 to 7, and it reviews Jacob and his family entering Egypt, about 1876. Exodus ends with the completion of the tabernacle in the wilderness, about 1446 B.C. So Israel lived in Egypt for about 430 years, from the time Jacob came in until Moses led them out, 430 years. Joseph is born about 1915, and he dies at 110, about 1805. So from the death of Joseph, at the very end of Genesis, you'll see the death of Joseph, until the completion of the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, about 360 years. Now, the U.S. is not quite 250 years old, so we're talking about some significant time horizons here, just so you know. The book of Exodus doesn't cover 360 years. It covers two years. The book of Exodus covers the year before the Exodus with the ten plagues, That's right? And it covers the year after the Exodus, after they left Egypt, 90 days later, they're at Mount Sinai, and they spend a year at Mount Sinai. So Exodus is a very narrow focus, two years. And it can be divided into two broad categories. If you're trying to divide Exodus into categories, chapters 1 through 15 are about God's liberation and rescue of Israel from Egypt. And chapter 15 to 40 is how God adopted them as his own people and their response to that. All, both these stories were initiated and brought to completion by Yahweh. And the summary of God's promised actions, if you want a summary of the book of Exodus, what God intended and what he promised and what he made to happen, look at Exodus 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. 
I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You know, when God promises something, what do you know for certain? It will take place. But it will take place in His time, not necessarily our time. Someone to summarize Exodus by saying, the purpose of the book of Exodus is to celebrate God's gracious deliverance of His chosen people from Egyptian slavery, to the freedom of a covenant relationship with God and fellowship with Him. So this leads us to our key idea. Here's our first, first idea that's kind of the overarching. The God of the Bible is a holy and loving God who saves people from their slavery to sin so they can have a relationship with Him. The God of the Bible is a holy and loving God who saves people from their slavery to sin so they can have a relationship with Him. Exodus is going to illustrate that for us. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 1. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Here's our first principle. God transplanted Israel into a foreign land in order to prepare them to possess their promised land. God transplanted Israel into a foreign land in order to prepare them to possess their promised land. Now, there's huge numbers of application to that. Some of you feel like California is a foreign land. God has you here for a mission. If this is a foreign country to you, congratulations. You're called a missionary activity in a foreign land. Get busy, right? So Moses begins Exodus with a brief genealogy. Really, Moses is trying to highlight the very small number of people that came into Egypt and the very large numbers of people that exist in Egypt that are Israelites when he was born. Genesis 46 records that Jacob's family numbered 70 males, 70 men when they arrived in Egypt. So you double that for uh, children, uh, boys and girls, etc. You come up with 140 people. So let's just say there's 140 people that entered into, uh, into, uh, into Egypt, 70 men, 70 women. Moses records that when they left Egypt at the Exodus, there were 600,000 adult males, excluding women and children. So if you have 600,000 males, adult, over 20, and you estimate a family of four, six times four is 24, you get 2.4 million people. Now that excludes the non-Israelite mixed multitude that showed up with them. So if you have a 430-year period, Jacob shows up in 1876, they leave in 1446. You only need a growth rate of 2.3% a year. If you have a population growth rate of 2.3% per year, 
430 years, you go from 140 to 2.5 million. It can happen, right? So Israel has increased from a clan of 140 to a nation. And that's part of God's mission why they're there. The word, interestingly, when you look at the word increased greatly, the Hebrew word for that is swarmed, like a swarm of insects. Swarm, huge multiplication. God is emphasizing that. As a matter of fact, read the last verse, verse 7. Look at the superlatives that talk about multiplication. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. You get in the picture what God is trying to say. He's blessing them enormously, but he had already promised that. Genesis 22, 17, he promised to Abraham, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of your enemies. God is has made that promise a reality in Egypt. So at the same time, the younger generation's coming up. The very next verse says, now Joseph died. And all that generation, Joseph and his brothers, they all died. When a generation dies, many, many times their history dies with them. How many of you would like to be able to get your grandfather or grandmother back on the line for a face-to-face meeting and just say, now that I have enough scar tissue about life, I want to know how you dealt with your issues and your troubles and trials 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years ago. I would love to talk to my great-grandparents and just say, just talk to me. Talk to me about the faithfulness of God in 1930, in 1910, in 1870. And when we don't teach our children our history, we lose it. If we fail to teach God, teach our children what God has done for their ancestors in the past, that history does not exist for them because they flat don't know. Even worse, and I just say this up front, many, 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 many young people ain't interested in the past. And we have not done a good job of communicating the value of that. That'd be a good item for prayer. How to communicate the value of the spiritual heritage that you've been given and they've been given. Losing your physical history is bad. Losing your spiritual history is catastrophic. Verse 8. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more than mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel." The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Here's the principle. Many times, God's greatest blessings grow out of our greatest sufferings. 
many times God's greatest blessings flow or grow out of our greatest sufferings. Now the text says a new king arose over Egypt. Now this new king did not know what Joseph had done. Joseph had saved Egypt from famine because God told him to store up grain during the seven years of abundance. So the seven years of famine, Egypt and that whole region had food to eat. He didn't know that. Even more so, he didn't want to know that. This new king did not want to honor any arrangements that previous pharaohs had made with Israel to protect them in the land of Goshen. Now, just a little history lesson. Egypt had been under foreign domination. There was a people group called the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S, Hyksos. They were an Asiatic people, Semitic origin. They probably migrated from Syria and Lebanon, today's Syria and Lebanon, down to Egypt. They actually conquered Egypt. And the Hyksos ruled Egypt from about 1700 to 1570 BC, 130, 140 years. They had superior military technology, they had iron chariots, they had Asiatic bows. And they, when they took over Egypt, they assumed the title of pharaohs. They adopted the Egyptian religion. I mean, they really assimilated the Egyptian gods. It's very likely that, that uh, Joseph was elevated the prime minister under a Hyksos pharaoh, because he was a foreigner as well. So he had some sympathy for the Israelites, who were also foreigners. But the Hyksos were conquered by an Egyptian king named Amos, and he reestablished native Egyptian rule. And he ruled between 1570 and 1546. He took back control of the country, threw out the Hyksos, centralized authority, united the nations, and persecuted foreigners and resident aliens. Now think about it. If you had been under the domination of a foreign people group, and you threw them out of the country and reestablished native rule, you would be paranoid about any foreigners because they just had you under the thumb for 150 years at that point. Now Moses was born during the time frame that this king and his descendants were persecuting foreigners and, and obviously elevating native rule. And this section, this eight-verse section here, tells us how Israel went from a privileged status to a prisoner status. Joseph has died. The Hyksos rulers have been overthrown. The new native Egyptian king is paranoid about everyone who's a foreigner or an immigrant. And even worse, God was blessing Israel with phenomenal population growth. And that scared the living daylights out of the Egyptians. By way of context, it's estimated that at this time, the total population of Egypt at the time of Moses was less than 5 million people. 5 million. If Israel has 2 million people, and the country as a large has 5 million people, that means 40% of the population might have been Israelites. You don't think that terrified the native Egyptians? The king says, look, we're in trouble. They might ally with our enemies. They might produce a rebellion. They might take possession of the land, or they just might up and migrate. Because the Egyptian economy was dependent on Israelite slave labor. And Pharaoh didn't want to lose his free labor. So his solution for this Israelite problem, too many people, was to force the adults to work to the point of malnourishment, exhaustion, and maybe even death. So he had the Israelite slaves, and they built two military storage cities, Python and Ramses, 
and they were located in the eastern delta near Palestine. Uh, Egypt at this time was involved in a lot of military campaigns in Palestine, up Israel and Syria and Lebanon, that area. So it, was, it made good sense to build garrison cities on the borders, and that's what they had the Israelites doing. They also worked in the fields. They also dug canals. So the goal of Egypt was to subjugate Israel under their slave masters. They wanted to intimidate them so they would not revolt, and they wanted to take advantage of their free labor. The long-term goal was simply to reduce their numbers. Now, if you're Israel, you would be saying what? All these promises have been made by God. Where is he? We are in subjugation to a pagan foreign power that's polytheistic and worships their gods, and it appears that their gods are stronger than our God because we are slaves to these people. Why does he allow us to suffer? The hard news and the true news is that persecution was part of God's plan. God did not initiate it. Evil Pharaoh, under the subjugation of Satan, did, but God used it. Remember that 500 years earlier, God had promised Abraham both trouble and triumph. Genesis 15, 13, God said to Abram, quote, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So God's sovereignty, his providence is all over this status that Israel is in right now, both future suffering and blessing. God's goal is to take Israel out of Canaan, I mean out of Egypt and into Canaan, which is the land that he promised them. Have you thought about this? God comes to you and says, um, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to take you into Canaan. But the desert has a lot of hardships. I mean, there's no water, there's no food, I'm going to have to give you manna, you're going to have to trust me for the water, or you can stay in Egypt. And let's suppose Egypt was wonderful. You were not a slave. You were by the Nile River. You were fat, happy, healthy. How motivated would you be to follow God into the desert, into the wilderness, into hardship? How many of you are willing to follow God into hardship now? Part of the problem is, when we get fat, happy, and comfortable, our spiritual hearing aids go dead. We don't hear when God says, I want you to do this, and it's really uncomfortable. And we tend to say, you talking to me, or is that you were talking to them, right? I mean, I know they're sitting next to me, right? So God had to make Egypt uncomfortable, very much so, so they would be willing to move when he told them to move. Sometimes God changes our circumstances to increase our ability to listen. Yes, I have found that when I am in pain, my spiritual hearing aid is really acute. When I'm not in pain, it's not quite as good. Not anywhere near as good. So God allowed Pharaoh to persecute Israel so they would learn to follow him. In Exodus 9.16, God says to Pharaoh, But for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout the earth. So God is using Pharaoh's enslavement of Israel, which was wicked and evil, to demonstrate his divine power to everyone on earth. He's going to supernaturally intervene on Egypt's behalf, Israel's behalf, through the ten plagues, 
through the Red Sea crossing. So God's miracles can't happen unless Israel is enslaved. And when God is done with Pharaoh, after ten plagues, Pharaoh will beg them to leave. And they will give them gold and silver and possessions in anything they ask for. In God's kingdom, everything has purpose. Everything has purpose. Pain, troubles, trials, joys, persecutions, all has purpose. God is always working, mostly behind the scenes, and he arranges every event to accomplish his purposes. God had promised Abraham, your descendants are going to be like numerous as the stars in the sky. And the most interesting verse here, it says, the more the Israelites were afflicted, the greater the affliction, the greater God blessed them. If that's true, how many of you are going to pray for suffering? If the suffering produces more spiritual blessing. Interesting. It says, the more they were afflicted, the more God blessed them with babies, and it says they grew and spread out. You know what that means? Bigger families need more real estate. They're taking over Goshen. They're spreading outside of Goshen and other parts of the Delta, and the Egyptians are getting really paranoid. So Pharaoh doubles down and pours more work, harder work, longer hours, less food, severe, brutal, harsh conditions. His immediate plan is to work them to death with hard labor. That's obviously not working. God is blessing them. So he decides to implement a longer-term strategy. Exterminate all the Hebrew male babies, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, the other Pua, and he said to them, When are you hoping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birthstone? If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Here's the principle. Yeah, I have a lot of commentary. No worries. <laughs> Christians are commanded to obey governmental authorities. But if we are commanded to disobey God, then we must obey God rather than men. Christians are commanded to obey governmental authorities, but if we are commanded to disobey God, then we must obey God rather than men. Now, the word midwife means those who help bear children. Midwife obviously was a woman. In that era, almost always childless, almost always unmarried, and they assisted pregnant women to deliver their children. Now, these two midwives are administrators. They're supervisors. There's two million Israelites. They need a lot more than two midwives to deliver all the children, right? These are managers. And the word shifra means beauty, and the word pua means splendor. It's fascinating what's not said here. God honored these two midwives by recording their names for all eternity in his word, and we don't even know who the Pharaoh's name is. None of them. God didn't say they were worth recording. But he records the names of two women that obeyed him. And Pharaoh is a weasel. He delegates the murder of Hebrew baby boys to Hebrew midwives. Now, is that stupid or what? 
Now, if it had succeeded in about 20 to 40 years, you can eliminate the nation. You have no male boys, you have no more families. Birthstone, women in that era often gave birth while sitting on two stones. Hebrew midwives were extremely unlikely to murder Hebrew babies, especially when mom and dad are there on site. This was not a well-thought-out plan. And it wouldn't take long for Hebrew families to figure out, you know, every time the midwife shows up, the male babies die. You know, here's what you do. Don't call the midwives. Very simple solution. Now, God's people are commanded to obey governing authorities unless they obviously command disobedience to God, Romans 13. Obedience to God supersedes obedience to human government. This is the first example of civil disobedience in Scripture. It says the midwives feared God more than Pharaoh. Jesus' disciple did the same thing. Remember Peter and John and the rest of them are preaching in Acts? And the council says, do not preach in this name. And Peter and John say, we must obey God rather than men. So obey the governing authorities, but if they command disobedience to God and God's word, disobey. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did the same thing, right? Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down and worship these idols. They said, in a nice way, go pound sand. We're not going to do it. Threw them into the fire. The Lord Jesus Christ himself came and protected them. So the midwives obey God, and they believed in the sanctity of human life. This is not a new concept, right? The sanctity of human life has been an issue ever since Genesis 3 because Satan is an apostle of death, of course, and Almighty God is the giver of life. Pharaoh called them to account. They believed, these two women and the midwives they supervised, believed this to the point they were willing to lay down their life, if necessary, in order to protect the sanctity of life. May we have that kind of courage. And when they were asked to explain, why aren't you killing the Hebrew babies, they say, look, Hebrew women are vigorous. They give birth before we show up. Unlike your Egyptian women. Ha, 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 ha. Now, it's probably true. The Israelite women were in, they were in a slave state, which means they were working, 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 working. They probably were very vigorous. They probably did give birth quicker. Here's the obvious part. All the midwives have to do is they say, look, here's what we've been commanded to do. Here's the solution. I'm going to train other women to help mom. Don't call us until the baby's born. We respond slowly to house calls. So they could actually say to Pharaoh, yeah, the babies are born before we show up. Now, they didn't say we show up late. But that would be the obvious thing to do. Have the Hebrew family say, call a midwife when the baby's born. That would solve the problem. How did God respond to that? Verse 20, so God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Here's the principle. God gives what is best to those who honor him by obeying him. God gives what is best to those who honor him by obeying him. God always blesses obedience, but it, his blessings do not always conform to what we want. That's why I said God gives what is best. He knows what is best. And he blessed these midwives by blessing the nation of Israel with even more babies. And furthermore, God arranged for Mr. Perfect to come along. These midwives were married and had families of their own. God gave them children when it was dangerous to have children. 
especially male children. Sometimes God blesses you with things that you don't think are a blessing at the time. And only 5, 10, 20 years later you go, oh, now I see. Yeah, now you see. Before you see, you walk by faith. God honors those who honor him. Matthew 6, 32 said what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It seems this paradoxically. The more Egypt afflicts Israel, the more God blesses Israel with more babies. It almost seems like he's baiting them to infuriate them. You're failing, and so they would afflict Israel even more, which would motivate Israel to leave even more. Interesting. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Here's our principle. God providentially uses all things, including evil and suffering, to accomplish his perfect plan in his perfect time. God providentially uses all things, including evil and suffering, to accomplish his perfect plan in his perfect time. Now, Pharaoh's second solution to the Israelite population problem is male infanticide. His final solution, I'm using that, you should hear Adolf Hitler in the back of your head, to the Jewish problem, once again, think Hitler, was to deputize the entire population of Egypt as informants and murderers. So whenever you hear a baby cry, investigate. If it's a male, Hebrew child, take them and throw them in the Nile. If it's a girl, Hebrew child, she can live. Now, understand that the Egyptians worship the Nile. You know, water, no life, so they had thought the Nile was their god. Among other, they had a huge number of gods, the Nile was one of them. So if you threw a baby in the water, it was a sacrifice to your god, which was a religious event for them. The baby would either drown or be eaten by crocodiles, but either way, Pharaoh's mission here was to exterminate all male children because only Hebrew males posed a military threat. Hebrew females, of course, would be enslaved and they would be married off to Hebrew men or added to a harem or something like that down the road. If this worked, within one to two generations, Israel would cease as a nation. God wants Israel to grow. Pharaoh wants Israel to shrink. How do you think that battle is going to work out? So the battle in Exodus is not really between Pharaoh and Moses. It's ultimately between God and God's people and Satan and Satan's people. Remember, after Satan successfully tempted Eve to sin, God vowed a descendant of the woman is going to destroy the serpent. Satan a descendant of Eve is going to destroy you. Well, Satan's first line of attack is make sure that Cain killed Abel because he thought Abel was the seed. I don't know who's going to be the one, so let's take out Abel. Well, it turned out it wasn't. And Satan reads the Bible better than you do, so when Satan discovered that God was going to send the Messiah through Abraham's descendants, he now declared war on the Jews. Satan is now using Pharaoh 
to prevent Israel to get into the promised land because in the promised land is where Messiah is going to be born of the Jewish nation exactly as God promised. As a matter of fact, Satan wants to exterminate the Jewish race entirely and he's used people like Pharaoh, Haman, Herod, Hitler. You can just run the list history to try and destroy them and nothing has changed. Pastor Skip Heisig says that anti-Semitism is really satanically inspired persecution. Satan wants Israel exterminated. Now, it's not going to happen because the God of glory has made promises to the nation of Israel that will be kept because God's word will never fail. I want you to see the providence of God throughout this section of Exodus, and Exodus at large, we're going to see this in greater detail, but just, just review what we know so far. God wanted Israel to be a holy nation, set apart for himself. So he sends them out of wicked Canaan into Egypt to prevent them from being spiritually corrupted by the Canaanites. Canaan was filled with wickedness, idolatry, child sacrifice, gross spiritual immorality, sexual immorality. So God mercifully gives the Amorites, the Canaanites, 400 years to repent. If you think you're stubborn, God is very patient. He waited for, I would say that's kind of eternal patience. 400 years I'm going to wait for you to repent before I'm going to judge you for evil, which they did when Joshua came. So God puts Israel into Egypt. The Egyptians hated shepherds because the Hyksos were shepherds and they just threw them overboard, right? Why would that be important? Well, they put them up in Goshen where they could raise their sheep and their goats and they didn't want anything to do with the Israelites as far as interrelationships. That was protective. Had they intermarried with pagan Egyptians, polytheistic Egyptians, they would have been spiritually compromised and it would have been a disaster, Genesis 38. As a result of being in Egypt, however, God has arranged the Egyptians to have 400 years of exposure to the gospel. 400 years of exposure to a people group who had a relationship with the God who created the heavens of the earth. And they had 400 years to hear the Jews testify about the goodness and greatness and salvation of Yahweh. Even more so, they had a prime minister who was a follower of Yahweh who had saved their lives. Do you think that was an open door for them to listen to what the kind of God Israel was like? When they're in Egypt, they grow from 140 to 2 million. Why was that important? Well, they have a job description coming up called Conquer Canaan. You ain't going to conquer Canaan with 70 men. So you grow the nation from 140 to 2.5 million, now you've got a size large enough for of Canaan. Furthermore, Israel would not be motivated to leave Egypt, so God uses hardships in Egypt to prepare them for the difficulties of the desert. The desert is going to be enormously hard. I don't know how to say this, but I'm convinced that sometimes what God is doing in your life right now is preparation for what is to come. And that generally just terrifies us. I wonder what he's got in mind. He is your father. The perfect father. If he knows you to be prepared for something in the future, 
then learn the lessons he has to teach you today so that you can apply them in the circumstances he faces you with tomorrow. So Israel has got to get ready for a wilderness experience. And we will find out they don't do very well with that at all. They whine and complain and bellyache from scratch, just like us. Your hot water heater hurts or, or breaks. I don't hear a lot of praising coming. That's happened to me before. God used 10 plagues in Egypt, many miracles in the wilderness, to demonstrate his sovereignty for Israel. How are you going to see the miracles of God at work if you don't have troubles for him to fix? How are you going to see the power of God at work unless you are brought face to face with your own helplessness? I think the Lord does that for us out of love on a routine basis. He had puts us in circumstances where we do not have the capacity to solve. So we will cry out to him and depend on him. And then when he moves, we experience him in new ways. Because we were at a point of life and death, and he has intervened in our lives. And if everything was going hunky-dory, he wouldn't need to intervene, and we would not know him as well as we do. So we serve a God who loves us, but his love is limitless. His love is also relentless. His love will chase you down, even when you don't want it, for your own good. How many times have our children said, or our grandchildren, if you loved me, you would let me have my way. If I loved you, I would tie you to the fence post, or whatever, you know? Because I love you, I'm not going to let you have your way. You should memorize that with your children and grandchildren. Because I love you. God says that all the time. Because I love you, I want you to obey me because my way is better than your way, right? God will always do what is best for us, even if that involves troubles and trials in this life, and Israel is a classic example of that. Okay, let me review, and then Tom can come and do uh, prayer and praise. The God of the Bible is a loving, holy God who saves people from their slavery to sin so they can have a relationship with him. That's the whole point. Number two, God transplanted Israel into a foreign land in order to prepare them to possess their promised land. If he hadn't had the Egyptian experience, they would not be ready for the Canaanite experience, and they wouldn't have survived the wilderness in the first place. So God had purpose for them in Canaan. Many times, God's greatest blessings grow out of our greatest sufferings. If I asked you to make a list of the 10 most profound experiences that have shaped your life, almost all of them would be problems and trials and troubles and suffering and major events that left scar tissue on your body and on your soul, but the Lord saved you from them and revealed himself to you and his greatest blessings came out of your greatest sufferings. Christians are commanded to obey government authorities, but if we are commanded to disobey God, then we must obey God rather than men. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. Number four, God gives what is best to those who honor him by obeying him, which means you obey him and let him worry about what he's going to do with your obedience. The most important benefit you can get from obedience is the increased intimacy with him. 
It's your relationship with them. That is the real benefit. The rest of it is gravy on top of that. And lastly, we see God's providence at work all through Scripture. Exodus, you will see that in spades. God providentially uses all things, including evil and suffering, to accomplish His perfect plan in His perfect time. I love you all. Thanks for listening. Now that you know, do... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.